our loving Father in heaven, thank you once again for bringing us together in this place. We pray, Father, that as we go through the sermon for this morning, that your presence will be felt in our midst. Father, we ask for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that every one of us here would have the gifts of the Holy Spirit to give impressions in our hearts, to help us to make decisions, to help us to make changes in our life when necessary. Bring to our mind the things that you want us to do in this time. I lift myself unto your care, and I pray, Lord, that you put your words in my mouth. Speak through me, dear Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. morning everybody. Yesterday we began by looking at having us on the end, <clears throat> all the world wandering after the beast. Basically what we saw was the signs of the end that are fulfilling in recent times. The signs of the end being fulfilled in recent times even this year, just few months ago. The last thing we saw was just about four months ago, September of this year, the Pope calling the world together for them to make changes in the world through what? Education. And from what we could see, it's from all indications, over the years, all the signs are being fulfilled just a few more that is left. And the reason why the end of the world has not come is because God is doing a work of sealing. And he has given a command that the four winds should be held until his servants are sealed in the forehead. So, just briefly, we saw that we need to walk in line with God so that he can do the work of the ceiling so that it can come to an end. But I want us to open our Bibles now. I want us to look at the book of Revelation 14. Talking about those who are sealed, they are the 144,000. The 144,000 are those that are sealed as we see it in Revelation 7. But in Revelation 14, they are introduced again. Reading from verse 1, it says, And I looked... And lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred, forty, and four thousand, having his father's name written where? In their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, as the voice of the great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung as it were a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but a hundred and forty and four thousand, which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, reading from verse 6 to 14, what do we know is there? Revelation 14, 6 to 14. The three angels' messages. Most importantly, at this time, is the third angel's message, which starts from verse 9. It says, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, 
if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So that means this passage is telling us that the 144,000 are those that are developed by the three angels, specifically the third angel's message. And they are described in verse 12 as those who have the patience of the saints, and they are those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Now, something follows after this. If you read the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus said, And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached where? To all the world, and then shall the end come. Now, if you read this Revelation 14, verse 6, it says that another angel was flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to who? All the world. So that means, if you look at this first, second, and third angel's message, that is the message that brings about the end of the world. And we will see it now in this Revelation 14. Jesus said that when this message has had its effect, not just preaching it around the world, but when it creates its effect around the world, then the end will what? come. In Revelation, sorry, Matthew 24, 14, he said it will be preached to all the world as a what? As a witness that everyone has heard. But then it's not just to be a witness, but it's to develop a people that have the patience of the saints, that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Now let us see in Revelation 14 for you to understand that this is really the message that brings about the end of the world. We'll continue now from verse 13. Verse 13 says in Revelation 14, verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write. This is after the third angel's message. It's still part of the third angel's message. Write. What? Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. What is that henceforth? From, from what we have understood. Henceforth means what? From the third angel's message. Yes, said the Spirit, and they, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. And I looked, and I behold, and beheld, behold a white cloud, and upon the, white, upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand, what? A sharp sickle. So who is this one like the Son of Man? Christ. Jesus Christ. When did he see this? When did he see Jesus Christ coming on the clouds? Just after the third angel's message. He looked and he saw Christ coming, holding what? A sharp sickle in his hand. Verse 15 now. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap. For the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is what? Ripe. So after the third angel's message, there is a harvesting work that is done. There is a reaping work that is done. What does this harvest and reaping mean? Let's go to the book of Matthew 13. What does it mean when it says there is a harvest, there is a reaping, the harvest is ripe? Matthew chapter 13. We'll be reading from verse 
37. Matthew 13. We are trying to find out in the book of in the book of Revelation chapter 14 when it talks about the thrusting of the sickle, reaping of the earth. What does that mean? Bible, the Bible will interpret itself. Revelation, Matthew 13, reading from verse 37, says, He answered and said unto them, He that sowed the good seed is who? The son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. So when we read in Revelation 14 that the time of the harvest is come and it is time to do what? Reap. Harvest means what? The end of the world. And when did that harvest happen? After the third angel's message. So you see that the third angel's message is the last warning given to the world. And when it has done its work in the world, what is Jesus going to do? He's going to come and reap. Yesterday we stopped by looking at what is it that is really delaying the coming of Jesus Christ? Because even the peculiar prophecies to Seventh-day Adventist Church, things like Sunday laws will be passed, the United States will try to influence the civil authorities in the U.S. to make laws and that favor their own dogmas. We see those things are already doing what? Happening. Has the whole world wandered after the beast? Yes, we saw it yesterday. Islam, Jew, and we saw in 1999, the interfaith meeting, how many religions were represented? 2,000 religions represented, and they decided that the Pope, that time John Paul II, was the what? Spiritual leader of the earth. So those prophecies are already fulfilled, as far as Revelation 13 is concerned. And they are already prepared to fulfill the rest of it. And we will see that in our next lecture. They are ready to fulfill the rest of it. But so what is stopping them? God is holding the four winds. Why is he holding it? Why is it that he's not yet ready to reap? And that's what we're going to look at today. We saw that the, 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 the third angel's message is supposed to develop the 144,000. But because they are not ready, and that is why the four winds are being held. But I want us to read it more in detail here now. What is this seal of God that is placed on the 144,000. It is a settling into the truth. I'm reading from Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, page 968, paragraph 13. It says, What is the seal of the living God, which is placed in the foreheads of his people? It is a mark which angels, but not human eyes, can read. For the destroying angel must see this mark of redemption. The intelligent mind has seen the sign of the cross of Calvary, in the Lord's adopted sons and daughters. The sin of the transgression of the law of God is taken away. They have on the wedding garment. And are obedient and faithful to God's, all God's commands. They are obedient and faithful to how much? All of God's commands. When God has seen someone who is obedient and faithful to all his commands, then what happens? His seal is placed on them. So what does that mean? That means we should be studying what? The law of God. Study the commandments of God. To know whether you are conforming to the commandments of God. Study it over and over and over again. It's an exhaustless thing. 
is something you must use to examine yourself because that's what God is going to use to judge the world. So it is no wrong thing for you to do if every day all you are studying is what? The law. David said he loves the law of God and it is his meditation how often? Day and night. It is not only during programs that it is his meditation. It is not only on Sabbath days that it is meditation. The law of God is his meditation how? Day and night. And was it the meditation of Jesus Christ day and night? Yes. It was the meditation of Jesus Christ day and night. So why does Christ delay? I'm reading now from last day events, page 37, paragraph 5. It says, Had Adventists, after the great disappointment in 1844, held fast their faith and followed on unitedly in the opening providence of God, receiving the message of the third angel, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming it to the world. So two things. It's not just to proclaim it, but to do what? Receive it. That's receiving. What does it mean? That means allowing it to have its what? Effect in your life. And what is the effect of the third angel's message? It's to create that patience in your life, patience of the saints, the faith of Jesus, keeping of the commandments of God. That is the effect of the third angel's message. And assuming they had received it and then proclaimed it to the world, they would have seen what? The salvation of God. The Lord would have wrought mightily with their efforts. The work would have been completed and Christ would have come to receive his people to their reward. It is not the will of God that the coming of Christ should be thus delayed. Do you want to know the will of God? The will of God is that he should come quickly. It is not his will that we have stayed this long. But we will see now whose fault is it more and more. Last day event, page 38, paragraph 1. For 40 years with unbelief, what else? Murmuring and rebellion shut out ancient Israel from the land of Canaan. The same sins have delayed the entrance of modern Israel into the heavenly Canaan. In neither case were the promises of God at fault. It is the unbelief, the worldliness, unconsecration, and what? Strife among the Lord's professed people that have kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many years. Let us examine ourselves now. Are you the one with the unbelief? Is it your unbelief? Is it my unbelief that is stopping the coming of Jesus Christ? Am I worldly in my heart? You know, worldliness is a very broad term. It shows itself in various ways. It shows itself in your hairstyle. It shows itself in your dress. It shows itself in the choice of your career, in the choice of your husband or your wife. It shows itself in your speech. When Peter spoke when Jesus was being tried, and he spoke among the people, they said that his speech was doing what? betraying him, that he spoke like someone that walked with who? Jesus Christ. And then he started to do what? Curse. To show them that he is not one that walks with Jesus Christ. There is a way we speak that is worldly, and there is a way we speak that people will know that you are of Christ. What is stopping the coming of Christ? Unbelief, murmuring, rebellion, worldliness, unconsecration, strife among the Lord's professed people. And who is that? Seventh-day Adventists. And as if things are, as if that's not bad enough, we are getting worse and worse by the day. Let me bring it locally now. 
1999, when Nigeria became democratic, we were not seeing, that was when the, the tip of the iceberg started with a seven-day adventist as the deputy governor of Abia State. But since then, that leaven, what has it done? It has leavened the whole lobby. Now, Ebony State wants to clamor to become, they want to go into politics all over, go to the west, go to the north. Everything is happening. If you go to the Middle Belt, even in Joss, a seven-day Adventists are becoming involved in what? Politics, which is worldliness. And the worldliness is coming where? Into the church. The same music you hear out there, they bring it into the church. They check, they do hairstyles, the dressing. What did I hear when I was in Futo just a few months ago? The song, the UEFA Champions League, that they sing, the champions, they have converted it into a choir song now. And they are singing it in church. And nobody could even understand that this is worldliness coming into the church. And that is what is stopping the coming of Christ. Worldliness, unconsecration, unholy lives. My ears have tingled at the things I have heard and seen. In my own life, let me not make it out there, even in my own life and in the lives of others. The things, the unconsecration. And many times the reason is because we have neglected the spirit of prophecy. Our parents bring us up without the spirit of prophecy. Nobody's reading Adventist home. Nobody's reading child guidance. So they allow us to watch the TV. They don't know what we are following, all the sins that we are getting into. And then children have to struggle to come out of sin. And when they come out, they say, oh, it's not just me. There are so many of us are into the same thing. All consecration. Strife among the Lord's people. As we are here now, you do this work. Everybody, like you say, wants to be a center of what? Influence. So that even if you are doing the work of God, the leaders don't care. They don't want to know. All they want to know is that it's under my control. They want to be the center of influence. They don't care whether you are casting out, whether you are teaching people the truth. All they want to know is, did you make us aware? Did you acknowledge us? Did you give us the, the honor of being the ones in charge? And when you don't do that, they are not happy like Jonathan to see David conquer Goliath without his permission. And they will question David, who told you to conquer Goliath? Why didn't you tell me first, like King Saul? But if you are a Jonathan, what would you do? David has conquered Goliath. It does not, I don't care whether I'm the one who did it. I don't care whether I'm the one who gave him the permission. As long as Goliath is conquered, glory be to God. But these attitudes are the things that are stopping the second coming of Jesus. And as long as we continue in this unbelief, unconsecration, worldliness, murmuring, rebellion, murmuring at health reform, murmuring at the kind of diet we're supposed to be taking, murmuring that the spirit of prophecy is restricting us to a kind of lifestyle and condemning our worldliness, those kind of murmuring and rebelling, outright rebellion against God, against the spirit of prophecy which is supposed to be the mark of God's true church. Rebelling against it. How can Jesus come when the church is in this state? Both locally and internationally. How can Jesus come? This is what is delaying Christ coming more. Still on last day events, page 38, paragraph 2. Had the church of Christ done her appointed work, as the Lord ordained the whole world before this, have been, sorry, as the Lord ordained, the whole world would before this have been warned and the Lord Jesus would have come to our earth in power and great glory. You can also find that in Desire of Ages, page 633 and 634. So if we had done our work, not just in 
a change of life, but in preaching the right message, present truth, then Christ would have come. The angels of God in their messages to men represent time as what? Very short. And these passages all show that. Thus, it has always been presented to me. It is true that time has continued longer than we expected in the days, in the early days of this message. Our Savior did not appear as soon as we hoped. But has the word of the Lord failed? Never. It should be remembered that the promises and threatenings of God are alike what? Conditional. God said, I am coming shortly. On what condition? On condition that you also do your part. I'm coming shortly for whose benefit? For your benefit. But if you don't do your part, if I don't do my part, is he going to come shortly? No. Last day events, page 39, paragraph 1. We may have to remain here in this world because of insubordination. Many more years as did the children of Israel, but for Christ's sake, his people should not add sin to sin by charging God with the consequence of their own wrong course of action. Is it Jesus' fault that he has not come? It is our own wrong course of action. So we shouldn't blame God. But what is the other problem we're seeing here now? Insubordination. What does that mean? Not allowing yourself to be controlled, to be used by God like you see. Not allowing yourself to conform to God's standards, to his word. Not standing with the word truth. Insubordination. Jesus said in Luke 6.46, Why call ye me what? Lord, Lord, and do not the things I say. Why are you calling me Lord when you don't allow me to control you? Why are you calling me Lord when you are insubordinate? When I tell you this is what your diet should be like, you rebel. When I tell you not to walk on the Sabbath, you rebel. Every command I give you, check which one you have not what? Failed. You've broken all and yet you say I am your God. That was the same thing that happened to the Israelites in Egypt, coming out from Egypt, sorry. And also, it happened to them just before they entered into 70 years of captivity. God was trying to convince them of their sins and they would say we have not sinned. They were insubordinate and God was convincing them, you are not allowing me to control you. And they would say, no, you are, we are still your children. Let's see that in Jeremiah. Let's open to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Reading from verse, verse 18. God is talking to us as Seventh-day Adventists today. God is talking to us as Seventh-day Adventists today, Jeremiah 2, reading from verse 18. And now, what hast thou to do in the way of what? What have you to do in the way of what? Egypt. What does Egypt represent? Sin. The world. You say what? Bondage. What are you doing in bondage? What, have you, what are you doing going back to where? Egypt. Going back into sin. What have you to do in the way of Egypt? To drink the waters of or what has thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Thy own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter, that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord of hosts. No more reverence for God. Verse 20 now. For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou sayest, 
I will not transgress. When upon what? Every high hill and upon ev- under every green tree, thou wanderest playing the harlot. This is what I'm saying here. God is saying you are playing the harlot. And what are they saying? I will not transgress. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right sheet. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Verse 23. Okay, let me continue from 22. For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much what? Soap. Yet thine iniquity is marked before me, said the Lord God. How can thou say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after barley. See thy way in the valley. Know what thou hast done. Thou art a swift dromedary, traversing her ways. A wild ass, used to the wilderness, that snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure. In her occasion, who can turn her away? All they that seek her will not weary themselves. In her months, they shall find her. Withhold thy foot from being unshod, and thy throat from test. But thou sayest, there is no hope. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. This sounds like a condition of the church today. Going after Egypt is swift dromedary, traversing her ways like a harlot in her time. You don't look... You don't need to look for her. She's the one that will find you. Following after the world. And the problem here is God is trying to tell us, you have polluted your ways. And the people are saying what? We have not done that. There's nothing wrong in voting on Sabbath. There's nothing wrong in writing exams on Sabbath. There's nothing wrong in walking on Sabbath. There's nothing wrong in watching pornography. There's nothing wrong in watching movies. Nothing wrong in listening to secular music. Everything God tries to convince them and tell them this thing you are doing is wrong. You should repent. What would they say? There's nothing wrong. I have not polluted my ways. I will not transgress. And the chief people in this thing are the leaders. Because they won't speak up against it. And when someone speaks up, they won't even support it. Rather, they will turn against the truth. And that is where the problem is. Insubordination. And that is one of the reasons Christ has not come. And you should be checking yourself. Is that insubordination in my life? Am I one of those who are insubordinate? Who is not allowing God to control me and use me? So what exactly is Christ waiting for? We'll go back to what we read in Revelation 13 and... uh, um, Sorry, Revelation 14 and Matthew 13. Have it in mind. We're not going to read it. In Christ's Object Lessons, page 67, paragraph 1, we read a process of things that will take place before Christ will come. It says, give, talking about um, Matthew, sorry, Mark. Let's read that place first. Go read this. This commentary is on Mark. Mark chapter 4. Let's open our Bibles to Mark 4. Reading from verse 28. Mark 4 verse 28. It says, for the earth bringeth forth fruit. We're going to be talking about fruit now. The earth bringeth forth what? Fruit. And that's what our topic is going to be on. Bringing forth what? Fruit. Of herself. First, the what? The blade. And then, the ear. After that, the full corn in the ear. Now, Mark verse 29, it says, But when the fruit is brought forth, what happens? Immediately, or five days later, or ten days later, what does it say? Immediately, he put it in the sickle because the harvest is come. Do you remember those words? Harvest, 
Ezekiel? Do you remember this? Where did you see this? Revelation Revelation 14 and Matthew 13. What is the harvest? And what is the sickle used for? For reaping. Now in verse 29 it says, But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he put it forth the sickle because the harvest is come. Who is delaying? The plant. Because from what the Son of Man will do, how, will he, how long will he wait after, the, after it is right? He, he will do it immediately. So if Christ has not come, it is because the harvest is not yet right. And that is why he has not brought forth the sickle to reap the earth. Because he has said that if it is right, what will happen? Immediately. Immediately. Not just I will come, but I will come how? Immediately. So let's read the commentary on Christ's object lesson 667, paragraph 1. It says, the wheat develops first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. The object of the husbandman, who is the husbandman? The father, of course. In sowing of the seed and the culture of the growing plant is the production of grain. He wants to produce grain, which is the fruit. He desires bread for the hungry and seed for the future harvest. So the divine husbandman looks for a harvest as the reward of his labor and sacrifice. Christ is seeking to do what? Reproduce himself in the hearts of men. And he does this through those who believe in him. The object of the Christian life is fruit bearing. The reproduction of Christ's character in the believer that it may be reproduced in others. Are you seeing how it goes? That is the fruit bearing in your life and in my life. The object of God is to first of all reproduce his character in us, in me, first of all, and you also, also first of all. And after that, it doesn't end there, but when you are a seed, what happens? You also replanted and you produce more fruit. That's what it means to bear fruit. We'll get to that. There can be no growth or fruitfulness in the life that is centered in self. Remember that it is when fruit is produced that you are harvested. You cannot be harvested when it's just the blade and the ear. There must be the full corn in the ear. And then even that full corn in the ear will be taken and to be what? Planted and itself will grow, blade, ear, and then full corn in the ear. And that, is, that seed now has produced fruits. Who is the original seed? And he wants to produce more a fruit, and in that fruit there will be what? Seed. And those seeds will also produce more fruit. When all these things happen, Christ will come. Now it says there can be no growth or fruitfulness in the life that is centered in self. If you have accepted Christ as a personal savior, you are to forget what? Yourself. Have you forgotten yourself? If you have indeed accepted Christ, you are to do what? Forget yourself and try to help others. Talk of the love of Christ. Tell of his goodness. Do every duty that presents itself. Carry what? The burden of souls upon your heart and by every means in your power, your talent, your speech, your money, every means in your power. What should you do? Seek to save the lost. 
That is how you bear fruit. As you receive the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of unselfish love and labor for others. So what is the Spirit of Christ that you have to receive? The Spirit of what? Unselfish love and labor for others. You will grow and bring forth fruit. The graces of the Spirit will ripen. Are you seeing the word there now? The graces of the Spirit will ripen in your character. Your faith will increase. Your convictions deepen. Your love be made perfect. More and more, you will reflect the likeness of Christ in all that is pure, noble, and lovely. So, what Christ wants to do in us is to put his character in us, which is his spirit in us. And that spirit is not necessarily about preaching the word. Firstly, it's about what? Your own character. And what is that spirit? It continues now. The fruit. Before here, remember it had said that your faith, the graces of the spirit will do what? Ripen in your character. The graces of the spirit. And what are those graces of the spirit? The fruit of the spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. This fruit can never perish, but will produce after its kind a harvest unto eternal. How does a fruit, a fruit produce after its kind? You first of all do what? Plant it, and when it grows, it will produce after its kind. But it must be a seed of the original first before it then it can be planted and it grows. The first thing God, first seeds in Eden or in the earth that God ever made, they had their original, it's not so. And then each one has been producing of itself over the years. 6,000 years later, they keep producing what? Of themselves. Orange seeds have been producing orange for the past 6,000 years. And that is what God wants to do in us. He wants his character to ripen in us. And that means the revelation of these graces of the Spirit in our life. Do you have the fruit of the Spirit? When the fruit of the Spirit is seen in you, you will be harvested. You will be sealed. So what Christ is really waiting for? When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he put it in the sickle. I'm reading Christ's object lesson page 69 now. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he put it in the sickle because the harvest is come. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself where? In his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. So, if he has not come to claim them as his own, what does that mean? His character has not been perfectly reproduced. And what is that character? The fruit of the Spirit, which will reveal itself by also producing fruit after its kind. It is the privilege of every Christian, not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, where all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory. We're going to talk about how to bear the fruit now. How quickly the world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly, the last great harvest will be ripened and Christ will come to gather the precious grains. 
But this, so that means it's in my hands to hasten the coming of Jesus. It's in, your, it's in your hands too. Depends on the choice you make. You can choose to pursue a career that will not have give you the time to produce fruit in others and in yourself. It's all your choice. Everything comes at a cost. You can choose to get so busy making money that you don't have time to be busy winning souls for Christ like it says here. It's all your choice to hasten Christ's coming or not. Desire of Ages, page 633. By giving the gospel to the world, it is in our what? Power. It is in whose power? In our power to hasten our Lord's return. We are not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of the day of God. Education, page 264. He has put it in our power through what? Cooperation with him to bring this scene of misery to an end. Is our world a scene of misery? The very fact that you, as you are seated here, let me remind you, there's a possibility that you are going to die today. Hmm? There's a possibility that you are going to get cancer. If you like, say over my dead body, you are not the first. Many people have said over my dead body, and they still got it. There's a possibility that you are going to have an accident. There's a possibility that you'll be in a vegetable state. There's a possibility that it may not be you, but it may be your child. This world is indeed a scene of what? Misery. And it's in whose hands to bring it to an end? The very fact that it's a possibility, it's actually a possibility that such a thing can happen, should already make us get tired of this world and bring an everlasting solution to this misery. So instead of, some people say we want to solve the world's problem, and the world's problem is petroleum, and, and this, and petroleum, the world's problem. Climate. Climate change. Is that the world's problem? When you see that there's one button that if you press it, and all these things will be solved, why are you touching petroleum? I see petroleum is going to solve the problem that the ang- aggressive man has. If there's so much oil in the world, does it change the fact that there will still be an alcoholic? Does it change the fact that there will still be sickness and there will still be people who kill each other? There will still be earthquakes and pestilences? Does it change that? No. The only lasting solution to the misery of this world is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And if you want to solve the world's problem, then what should you do? Hasten the coming of Jesus. So you should decide and say, since I see that not only, even if all these problems were not there, like, you'll not be like Solomon. What does it profit me if after all I do in this world, I am still going to do what? Die. Have you ever thought of that before? Solomon said, I got me houses. I, I, I planted me vineyards. I got me made, made men singers and women singers. I built me pools. And everything his eyes lusted after, he got it. But what did he see? That everything was what? Vanity. But what, why was he saying it was vanity? He looked at it from afar. He said, the fool is foolish. But at the end of the day, I am going to die like the fool. So what is the difference between the wise man and the fool? No difference. In your lifetime, you are mocking the fool. Look at you, you are a foolish man. You don't know how to make, to, to, to farm. You don't, know how to, you don't know how to organize yourself, this and that. And you say, yes, I'm foolish, but after everything, two of us are going to end up in the same so what's the point? 
in all your wisdom, in all your technology, computer, you know all knowledge of sciences, you know it, but yet it cannot save you from death. Even though you enjoy yourself in this life, your misery will be greater when you think that all this my wealth, I'm going to leave it and I will do what? Die and I cannot take it with me. Not one drop of your wealth can you take with you. And your misery is even greater now that you understand that. So even if the world was a good place to live, death alone is something that should give us worries in our mind. If you are not the thoughtful type, it may seem to you as if there's no big deal in death. But when you come close to it, you will understand that there's a big deal in it. When your life is before you, you are about to be taken away, even if it's suddenly or through a sickness that you see is taking your life away, then you will see that you don't want to die. Now, it may look to you as if there's no big deal in death, but when it does come to you slowly or suddenly, you will see what your reaction will be like. And you will know that life is actually a precious thing. There's no point in living when we know it's going to end, in my opinion. What's the point in living when I know I'm going to die? Why don't it just come now? But then there's hope. And what is that hope? I can use this life and trade it to get what? Eternal life. That is the only use this life has. It has no other use. It's useless. Useless. This life is out. Useless. I, can't, I don't know how else to say it. Please, read this power two or three or whatever. Very, very useless. Except you use it to trade for, for what? Eternal life. That is the only use this life has. If you use it wrongly for your pleasures, to enjoy yourself, you are wasting your life. And you will lose it here. You will have spent it and then it will end here. But you can invest it. Invest your life and you will get good returns. And what is the good returns? Eternal life. If there's one thing you get, remember that. That you can trade this life for what? Eternal life. And that's what Christ wants us to do. We did not bring ourselves to this condition. Yes, Adam and Eve sinned. But all hope is not lost. God has told us just a short while you live on this earth. Use this life wisely. Trade it well and you will get what? Eternal life. It's our privilege. It's our power to bring an end to this misery of a life and bring in something, let something be ushered in that is better than what we have now. So who are these people that we read about here that would reflect, perfectly reproduce the character of Christ? We've seen it before. But let us just read here now from Revere and Herald, March 19, 1889. It says, The signet of heaven. John saw a lamb on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. They bore the signet of heaven. They did what? The signet of heaven. And next it says, They reflected the image of God. So who are these people that Christ is waiting for to reflect his character? It is those people, the 144,000. They reflected the image of God. They were full of light and the glory of the Holy One. If we would have the image and superscription of God upon us, what's the condition? We must. We must do what? Separate ourselves from what? All iniquity. That's the reason why we are still going to study what all iniquity is. What tells us iniquity? Romans 7. The law revives and then what happens? Sin also revives. When you know the law, then you will know what iniquity is. So we'll take our time to study again 
what is iniquity? What is the law of God? How can we get the victory over sin? Because if we must reflect the image of God, we must separate ourselves from all iniquity. And remember that it's in this separation of yourself from all iniquity that you are now harvested, and when you are harvested, then what happens? You've done your part at least to hasten the coming of Christ. And you've helped yourself. That's the best help you can do to yourself. We must forsake every evil way, and then we must trust our cases in the hands of Christ. While we are working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, God will do what? Will walk in us to will and to do of his own good pleasure. This is what we are supposed to be doing. So now, this fruit that is being said that we should bring forth, how? We want to study. How do we bring forth fruit? In the morning devotion, somebody mentioned something about it in brief, but we'll go deeper into it. John. John chapter 12. John 12. We'll be reading verse 24. John 12, verse 24. How do we bring forth fruit? Because you know that it is when you bring forth fruit that you are what? Arvested. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall where? Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die. It abideth alone. But if it dies, it bringeth forth what? Much fruit. And what is Christ waiting for? For you to bring forth much fruit. The way he also brought forth much fruit. You see, when we read Revelation 14, the third angel's message, telling us that here are those that, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Who is that describing actually? Who is patient? Who keeps the commandments of God? Who is the chief of that? Jesus Christ himself. He kept all his father's commandments. He had that patience. And even the faith being referred to there is what? The faith of Jesus. So in other words, the third angel's message develops a people that are exactly like who? Jesus. Because that character described there, the patience of the saints, keeping the commandments of God, and having that faith of who? Jesus. Who is he actually? Who are those people like? They are reflecting perfectly the image of Jesus Christ. The third angel's message. That is why we read earlier that assuming our church since 1844 allowed the third angel's message to be received in their heart and then preached it, Christ would have done what? Come. Because if they had received it, they would have had the patience of the saints. They would have kept the commandments of God and had the faith of Jesus. They would have perfectly reproduced the image or the character of Jesus Christ or of God. Now we are reading here, how are we to do that? It says, except a corn of wheat falls into the ground and dies. In other words, the condition for bringing forth fruit is that you must fall into the ground and die. That is how you can bring forth much fruit. But let me read the commentary. Desire of Ages 623, paragraph 2 says, Those who till the soil have the illustration ever before them. This is why education needs to be done in the right way. If you are doing education through your manual labor and all these things, these lessons will continue to remain in the mind. And that's why Jesus used the things around us to teach. 
here is teach, he's teaching a lesson that those who till the soil have this illustration. How often? Ever before them. What illustration? The illustration that before you must bring fruit, you must die. die. You must fall in the ground and die. That cassava that you are planting, you cut the stick, is it not? Before you put it into the ground and then it can bring forth fruit. The good seed, even as, as good as it is, if it chooses to preserve itself, can it bring any fruit? But for it to bring fruit, what must it do? Fall in the ground and die. And when it dies, what happens? It can bring forth much fruit. Year by year, man preserves his supply of grain by apparently doing what? Throwing away the choicest part. I'm not a farmer. I don't know too much about it. But in corn, let me see those who plant corn now. What grain do you keep when you want to plant corn? Which ones? The good ones, isn't it? So? And then, after keeping it, do you, do you eat it? Do you eat the good ones? Rather, what do you do with that good one? It's the one that you do what? Throw away. And when you throw it away, what happens? It's going to bring forth much fruit. For a time, it must be hidden under the furrow to be watched over by who? By the Lord. Then appears the blade, then the ear, and then the corn in the ear. But this development cannot take place unless what? The grain is buried out of sight. That grain is shelf. That grain is what? Shelf. Except self is buried out of sight, hidden, and to all appearance what? Lost. That is when you can bring forth much fruit. That is when there can be a development. Page 623, Desire of Ages. The seed buried in the ground produces fruit, and in turn, this is what? Planted. Thus, the harvest is what? Multiplied. So, the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary will bear fruit unto eternal life. The contemplation of this sacrifice will be the glory of those who, as the fruit of it, the fruit of it, what is that it? The death of Christ. Those who are saved are the fruit of what? The death of Christ. They are the fruit of Christ being buried in the ground, and then he brought forth much fruit. The death of Christ is what brings people to be saved today. And remember that when people, when, when more seed is brought out, then it is buried in the ground and produce much, uh, much fruit. And then those ones that are brought out, what do they do? They in turn do what? They are, they are planted too. So that means they also must also and then bring forth much fruit. And when they bring out fruit, then what will happen again? Those ones too must die and continue to, and to be so multiplied. The grain of wheat that preserves its own life can produce what? No fruit. Self-preservation does not produce any fruit. Christ could, if he chose, save his life himself from death. But should he do this, he must abide alone. He could bring no sons and daughters to God. Only by yielding up his life could he impart life to humanity. Only by falling into the ground to die could he become the seed of that vast harvest. The great multitude that out of every nation and kindred and tongue and people are redeemed to God. And by the way, this is not just talking about evangelism. Remember that you must be a seed exactly of the original. 
which is the Spirit of Christ. Fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. All those things must be in you. And then when he's in you, you can then produce a fruit after the same kind. With this truth, Christ connects the lesson of what? Self-sacrifice. That all should learn. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. All who will bring forth fruit as workers together with Christ must first do what? Fall. Fall where? Into the ground and die. The life must be cast into the fruit of the world's needs. Self-love. Self-interest must perish. And the law of self-sacrifice is the law of self-preservation. The husbandman preserves his grain by casting it away. So in human life, to give is to live. The life that will be preserved is the life that is freely given in service to God and man. Those who for Christ's sake sacrifice their life in this world will keep it unto eternal life. So, Will you sacrifice your life in this world? Do you know how you sacrifice your life? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you do what? Present your bodies as a living, not a dead sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you what? transformed by the renewing of the mind. That is Romans chapter 12, right? Verse 1 and 2. So, Christ wants us to have a different mindset, to sacrifice our lives while we are still alive. How do you do that? By dropping your ambition. By dropping your plans. And keying into God's plans. We have enough lawyers already. We have enough doctors already. We have enough... What do you want to go and study? Teachers. What we need now are people that will give their lives in service for God. Preaching the word of God and bringing forth much fruit in their own lives and in the lives of others. You know very well that when you go to school, we did not have many people. The schools of today were not made to prepare you to be like Jesus Christ. True or false? Did they open it so that they can reproduce the character of God in you? The schools were not opened so that they can reproduce Christ's character. It was opened for your selfish interest. For you to go there, learn something that when you come out, you will get honors and you have a means to make what? Money. And that is living for self. But God wants us to live for Him. That is the self-sacrifice now. That you drop your plans, drop your ambitions, and say, I'm giving my life to God to be used by Him. To do what He wants. And that's how Christ wants you to give yourself to Him. That is the way you put yourself what? In the ground. In the furrow. And then, you are watched by God and he produces fruit through you. Page 83, Desire of Ages, paragraph 4. We are going into another phase now. We've talked about how to 
produce fruit. But there's something else that I want us to take note of. I was listening to Norman McNulty and he mentioned this. And really, I thought about it. We know it, many of us. But how many of us really do it? Perhaps let us start today to do this thing that we've heard so many times. Isaiah 33, paragraph 4. It will be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour. How many? How often? Each day. In contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it, what? Point by point. And let the imagination grasp each scene. Especially the closing one. As we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, remember we just saw now that we must make what? Sacrifice of our own lives. This is the reason why contemplating the life of Christ is important. It helps you to bring forth much fruit because when you contemplate it, you behold what? The great sacrifice for us. Our confidence in him will be more constant than that thing that really lacks. Do you know that this is the number one thing that lacks in the Christian life? Love. Our love will be quickened. I'm assured, I'm 100% sure that if we have love, that is the one thing that is lacking. If there was love for God in our heart, it's the solution to every problem. It's the solution to every sin problem you have, every defect of character, every fault, every bad habit. Love will conquer everything. I mean love for Jesus, love for God, it will conquer everything. But how do you develop that love? Contemplate the life of Christ. Take it point by point. Let your imagination grasp each sin, especially what? The closing ones. When you dwell on his great sacrifice, your confidence in him will be more constant, your love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. If we will be saved at last, we must learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation at the foot of the cross. So when we look at the life of Christ, what do we see? Take note, we see the death of Christ. Contemplate what? The life of Christ. In other words, we start from before he was incarnated and know who he was. Then think about the fact that he was now brought down to this earth as a what? Baby. What kind of family was he in? What kind of life did he live as a baby, as a child? Then think about it. Growing up, how was his life? Then after that, what kind of life did he live as an adult? And then think of his death. That is what will help you to have that confidence in him and have that love that will be quickened and be imbued with his spirit. So let's see now from the spirit of prophecy. What do we see when we contemplate the life of Christ? Testimonies, volume 1, page 160, paragraph 2. Here's what you see. Do you talk about self-denial? What did Christ give for us? When you think it hard that Christ requires how much? All. Go to where? Calvary. And weep there over such a thought. Behold the hands and feet of your deliverer. Torn by the cruel nails, that you may be washed from your sin by his own blood. And yet, you dare say that Christ is requiring too much from you when he tells you to change your diet, to change your dress, to change this and change that. And then you say Christ is requiring too much. Is he asking too much? When he tells you to drop your ambition and follow me, is he requiring too much? You may say so. But just as soon as you go and look, you think of what Christ had to pass through for us in Calvary, and then you see his hands and feet in your imagination. All thoughts that he's requiring too much from you will do what? Vanish away. 
Testimonies, Volume 1, page 170, paragraph 3 said, Said the angel, Jesus left a bright track for you to follow. Tread closely in his footsteps. Share his life of self-denial, his self-sacrificing life, and inherit with him the crown of glory. So when you contemplate the life of Christ, you see self-denial, and you see what? Self-sacrifice. And that is the track he left for us to what? To follow. Are you following that life of self-denial and self-sacrifice? If Jesus went to study medicine, who would have been a better doctor than himself? Anyone? He didn't study it, yet he was healing more people than the doctors could do. If he was to study law, would he be better than the Pharisees? Even though he didn't study it, was he better than the Pharisees? He was still better than them. Do you know that at the end of the day, when you study your Bible, hmm, you are studying all those things, and you are going to be better than the world. You are studying zoology, you are studying botany, you are studying physiology, you are studying even psychiatry, all those things, and you will be better than those who are studying it in the worldly schools. See, Christ is not calling you to a life of illiteracy. He is not calling you to a life of dumbness. He is calling you to intelligence, a higher intelligence than anything the world can offer. And many of us who are here are examples of that intelligence. I can tell you that I knew very little until I started to study my Bible. And others who are here, like Ken will say, are examples of some of us have not been to the university, but yet you can see that when you stand with people who haven't gone to university, they even ask you, sorry, what's the meaning of that word you just said? You have to carry dictionary. Not because you are even trying to bamboozle anybody with big words, but because in the world, they are really not teaching them anything. They are really not teaching them anything. So Christ is not calling us to a mediocre life, actually. When you sacrifice yourself and allow him to control, then you will understand that God is indeed omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. He will teach you things that the world does not know. And you'll be wiser than your teachers. So don't think that when he's asking you to sacrifice your life and give it to him, he wants to make you mediocre. No, don't think that. That's not what he's trying to do. He's actually trying to make you better. Trying to make you more intelligent. So we, he, he left a bright track for us. And in that track, we see he also was taught by God and he could stand with the Pharisees and they could not, they couldn't, they could, they couldn't gain say anything he said. Doctors, the woman who had the issue of blood, 38 years, she had, the Bible said she had been from one physician to another. And what happened? She couldn't get healing. But when she came to Jesus, what happened? She was cured of her illness by a man who did not study where? In the schools of the world. We have someone of that example, I think Mamon Wilson, who didn't go to school, but yet cures people of cancer that the world says cannot be cured. Let's go on. What do we see when we contemplate the life of Christ? Testimonies on the one page, 451, paragraph 2. I was shown the life of Christ. Remember that I said we should take a thoughtful hour every day, contemplating what? The life of Christ. I was shown what? The life of Christ. When his self-denial and sacrifice is compared with the trials and sufferings of the wives of some of our ministers, it causes anything, and not just the wives of ministers, it's every human being. It causes anything 
which they may call sacrifice to sink into what? Insignificance. If the minister's wife or anybody speaks words of discontent and discouragement because she's doing ministry, work of ministry. So all of us who are here too, if you are doing a work in ministering for God, evangelistic work, and you speak of discouragement and discontent, the influence upon others is bad. On the minister's wife, upon the husband, it is what? Disheartening and tends to cripple him in his labor, especially if his success depends upon surrounding influences. Must the minister of God in such cases be crippled or torn from his field of labor to gratify the feelings of his wife, which arise from an unwillingness to yield inclination to duty? The wife should conform her wishes and pleasures to duty and give up her selfish feelings for the sake of Christ and the truth. So why I'm reading this is not necessarily for the minister's wife, but for you to understand that in contemplating the life of Christ, anything you call sacrifice will sink into what? Insignificance. Christ, page 240, Testimonies, Volume 1. Christ demands how much? All. If he required less, his sacrifice was too dear, too great to make, too, too great to make, to bring us up to such a level. Our holy faith cries out what? Separation. We should not be conformed to the world or to dead, heartless professors. Be ye transformed by the renewing of the, renewing of the mind. This is a self denying way. And when you think that the way is too straight, that there is too much self-denial in this way, when you think like that, in this narrow path, the self-denial is too much, when you say, how hard to give up all, ask yourself the question, what did Christ give up for you? And that's the reason why you should spend a thoughtful hour each day contemplating what? The life of Christ. So what did he give up for us? It says this question, that is what Christ gave up for us, this question puts anything that we may call self-denial in the shade. Behold him in the garden, sweating great drops of what? Of blood. A solitary angel is sent from heaven to strengthen the Son of God. Follow him on his way to the judgment hall, while he is derided, mocked, and insulted by that infuriated mob. Behold him, clothed in that purple kingly robe. Hear the choir's jest and cruel mocking. See them place upon the noble brow the crown of thorns and then smite him with a reed, causing the thorns to penetrate his temples and the blood to flow from that holy brow. Hear that murderous throng eagerly crying for the blood of the Son of God. He is delivered into their hands and they lead the noble sufferer away, pale weak and fainting in his crucifixion. He is stretched upon the wooden cross and the nails are driven through his tender hands and feet. Behold him hanging upon the cross those dreadful hours of agony until the angels veil their faces from the horrid scene and the sun hides its light refusing to behold. Think of these things and then ask, is the way too straight? No, is the answer. It is not too straight. Whenever you think that Christ is requiring things from you that are difficult, and you think the way is too narrow, and the path is too self-denying, I have to give up this, I have to give up that, I'm giving up almost everything. When you think of that, ask yourself, what did Christ give up for me? 
he left the glories of heaven, right? And you perhaps do not understand what that means. And that's why you don't even know what to compare yourself with. He left the glories of heaven where angels worship him on a daily basis, on a moment basis, every second. He left a place where all is joy and peace. But you have just one small comfort in your house. Matras, chairs that are not, they're just made of foam and wood. And you find it difficult to leave your career or to leave that house or to leave that food or whatever it is God is asking you to leave for his sake. But how much did he leave in comparison to what you have to leave? There's no comparison. It's as comparing vapor to material things. Hmm? It's, as, it's as if you are comparing something that cannot even hold. It's not tangible when compared with what Christ left. What you are leaving cannot even be held with your hand. It's not tangible. And yet you find it hard to leave these things. What is your life? Have you come to a point where you understand that your life is actually worthless except it's hidden with Christ? The things that you hold on to in this world, what are they really? Are they not things that perish? Will they use it? Of course, they are. And you find it hard to leave these things. And that is the reason we are told to contemplate the life of Christ. How often? Daily. Because it helps you. It develops that love in you. And more confidence in him. It gives you the force and power to let go of the things of this world. When you look at him leaving, up, leaving these things, at first it may not be clear. It may be blurry in your eyes. But the more you contemplate it, you understand that this thing actually did happen. If I really had the glories of heaven and I was receiving worship on a daily basis, having all that I need at my own disposal, would I really leave it to come down to die and suffer for some people, live a life of suffering, self-denial, sacrifice, privation, poverty, just because I want to save some people that really don't have any benefit in it? Would you do that? But Christ did that. There was no benefit in it it for himself. All was for who? For us. But yours, when you do it, you are still going to have what? The greatest benefit you can get in your whole life. It is still for your own good. And that's what we are being called to do. To trade something that is useless for something that is what? Useful. And yet, it's really a surprise that many still hold on to the earthly crown. God is displeased, page 370 of Testimonies, Volume 1. He is displeased with the lack of self-denial in some of his servants. They have not the burden of the work upon them. They seem to be in a death-like stupor. Angels of God stand how? Amazed and ashamed of this lack of self-denial and perseverance. While the author of our salvation was laboring and suffering for us, what did he do? He denied himself. And his whole life was one continued scene of what? Soil and privation. He could have passed his days on earth in ease and plenty and appropriated to himself the pleasures of this life, but he considered not his own convenience. He lived to do others what? Good. He suffered to save others from suffering. Can you suffer to save others from suffering? That is the dying. That is the putting into the ground. And then what? Dying to bring forth much fruit. And unless you are contemplating the life of Christ, you will see no need to do such a thing. Many of us say we believe in Jesus, but we've not even understood who Jesus is. 
if you really believed in him, it would not be a difficult thing to make, for you to make this sacrifice. Continuing, it says, he endured to the end and did what? Finished the work which was given him to do. All this was to save us from ruin. And now, can it be that we, the unworthy objects of so great love, will seek a better position in this life that was given to our Lord? Many of us are seeking a better position than that which was given to our Lord. And that's why we have ambition. And the position our Lord had was to suffer because he was trying to save us souls. Many of us don't like that position. We're seeking a better position. Every moment of our lives, we have been partakers of the blessings of his great love. And for this very reason, we cannot fully realize the depths of ignorance and misery from which we have been saved. Can we look upon him whom our sins have pierced and not be willing to drink with him the bitter cup of humiliation and sorrow? Can we look upon Christ crucified and wish to enter his kingdom in any other way than through much tribulation? And truly, many of us want to go to heaven without tribulation. When our master entered in with what? Much tribulation. And many of us run away from it. When you see your master, if you understand what that means, in any, any place that someone is brought up properly, if you see your master, you go to learn work, and your guy is doing a work that is maybe in your eyes humiliating, are you going to do that work too? Hmm? Are you supposed to do that work? If you are his servant, you are learning work. Who is the person that is supposed to go and buy all the stuff when you are learning work? Maybe a tailor. Go and buy bottles. Go and buy zip. Go and buy material. Is he your master that will do that? Fine. If he has done it, are you above that work? Can you be above a work that your master is doing? If you, are, if you say you won't do it, that means you are the one that is the master. Now. But are we the master? Jesus is the master. And he has done a work that if we must be his servants, the only way you can show that you are his servant is by coming down to do the same work that your master did. As long as he has done it, you are bound to do it. If he entered in through much tribulation, then you must also enter in through much tribulation. But that does not mean you are going to start looking for tribulation. Don't worry, don't bother yourself. You won't find it. All you need to do is keep God's commandments. And what will happen? Tribulation will come. It's something that naturally comes with keeping God's commandments. Naturally. As long as he insists on conscientiously keeping God's commandments, what follows is it? Tribulation. If you don't have tribulation, you are not conscientiously keeping God's commandments. So, what we are looking at here is how to reflect the image of Jesus. You know, even on the cross, did Jesus reflect that patience? How? In Hebrews 12, reading verse 1 and 2, what do we hear? It says, Who for the joy that was set before him, what did he do? Endured the cross, and did what? Despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, endurance needs what? Patience. So, Christ had to endure. And you also will have to do what? Endure. Testimonies, volume 1, page 150, paragraph 4 says, Said Jesus, Love one another as I have loved you. How much? His love cannot be told. He left the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. He was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He patiently bore every indignity and scorn. The patience of the saints, right? How do you get that patience? You must somebody must do something to you that requires patience, not so. So Christ, what was done to him? Indignity and scorn. And that was a time for him to learn what? Patience. Some of us, some of our friends now, and some of you in the future, would pass through this indignity and scorn. That's not the time for you to be complaining about your parents, or about your siblings, or about your boss, and how they are doing this and that to you. That is the time for you to develop what? The patience of the saints. By not breaking God's commandments in that time when you are being tried so, where you are called names because of the right thing that you are doing. That's not a time for you to be pointing fingers and complaining, but rather it's a time for you to do what? Develop the patience of the saints. And when it comes to bodily affliction, then you do what? You endure it too. Have patience. And that is the faith of Jesus. What was the faith of Jesus? In that he looked, that's what they say, the joy that was what? Set before him is what made him to endure. So he had faith, and that's why he had the patience. The faith that Jesus had made him to what? Patiently endure the pain and the scorn and the ridicule. First of all, what did he have? Faith. So you, the only reason you can bear all those things is because you have what? Faith. When you have that faith that Christ is going to give us a reward, or that in doing this, I am hastening the coming of Jesus Christ. You have that faith. It makes you to do what? Endure patiently. And remember that it is the keeping of the commandments that even brings you into such a position in the first place. So you see the three things embedded in the life of Christ. What is it that made them to kill Jesus? John 7, 7. He said to his brothers, The world cannot hate you, but me it hated, because I, what did I do? I testify that his deeds are what? Evil. How did he testify? With his character and with his words. His character was testifying by keeping the commandments. He testified that the deeds of this world were what? Evil. So he kept the commandments. And then he had faith when he was on the cross that this thing he was doing in dying for the sins of men was going to bring forth much fruit. And so it led him to what? Endure. And that is what we must have. The third angel's message is supposed to develop these things in us. The commandments of God, the patience of the saints, and the faith of Jesus Christ. He patiently bore every indignity and scorn. Behold his agony in the garden when he prayed that the cup might, be, might pass from him. Behold his sufferings on Calvary. All this for guilty lost man. And Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. How much? Well enough to give your life for a brother. Mm. We are to love well enough to give our lives for our brother. But has it come to this that self must be gratified and the word of God neglected? The world is their God. They serve it. They love it. And the love of God has departed. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Do you want to gratify self? Are you living to gratify self at the expense of living for Christ? 
This is what is delaying the coming of Jesus Christ. And as long as we continue to live for self, not reflecting, not making attempts intentionally to reflect the image of Jesus in us by contemplating his life so that love will be developed, will be developed in us, then we will continue to delay the coming of Christ. It's already bad enough in our church. The church is so polarized now. And I thank God that there are still some who are on the other end. As the world, as the church is going deeper into worldliness, there are others who are going deeper into primitive godliness. And you have to ask yourself, where are you? You see, Jesus said, I would that thou wert what? Either hot or cold. And his wish is coming to pass. We are becoming cold. Before we were lukewarm, we are not showing where we stand. But now we are holding worldliness with two hands. We are grasping it with two hands now. Yes, we are becoming cold, apparently cold. And that's what he said, because Jesus said, I would that that were what? Hot or cold. And thank God that there are others who are getting what? Hot. But you have to choose where you belong. Even the general conference is having it difficult now in trying to hold both ends. There are those who are polarized on the right side, getting hot. And there are those who are polarized on the cold side and the general conference wants to remain lukewarm. They are trying to unite the two. But they have to, eventually, the general conference has to choose one side. Because there are those who are promoting spirit of prophecy deeply in practice and in word. And there are those who are kicking against it and promoting worldliness so deeply in practice and in what? In their words. And you have to ask and choose which side you belong. Are you hastening the coming of Christ? Is his character being reflected or reproduced in you? That is what God wants in our lives. So what it is for us now is to make a decision. To choose who you will serve. To choose whether you want Christ's character to be reproduced in you or not. I know that many of us who came here we have been moving in that direction already. But some of us are moving very slowly. We have not given ourselves 100% to God. I want us to now think about these things, meditate on it, make decisions to follow God. Remember that it's all about the life of Jesus Christ, contemplating the life of Jesus Christ. That is the seed. He is the one that we are looking at. It's his pattern that we want to follow and reflect his character. Decide now that every day, you will contemplate the life of Christ point by point, especially the closing scenes. Because that's what we are told to do. Is that the first time you are reading that text? But have you been doing it? So we should start doing that. When you are in your conversation with your friends, if you realize that we are talking about so many other things, just remind the person, let's talk about what? The life of Christ. It's an exhaustless thing. You can't get tired of it. It's not boring. You can keep talking about it and you'll have more things. Angels of God will be by your side. The Holy Spirit will be upon you to give you things that will awaken the love of God in you and increase your confidence in Him. It's my prayer that all this will be our experience in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us sing that song we started with. SGH 152. Tell me the story of Jesus. 152. Let's rise.
our loving Father in heaven, thank you for the message that you've given to us this morning. Thank you, Father, for spoiling our heart and stirring us up by helping us to contemplate the life of Christ. Father in heaven, we commit every one of us who are here unto your care. We pray, Lord, that you would, through your spirit, impress on our hearts the need to live a life of self-sacrifice, to live a self-denying life, to give ourselves over to you. Forgive us, Father, for the ways that we have lived selfishly before now, for making decisions, not considering the coming of Jesus, but just considering the gratification of ourselves. We pray, Father, that from henceforth, you will touch every heart that is present here, touch each and every one of us to understand the need for our own selves, the need to give ourselves to you for our own benefit. We pray, Father, that you would let this theme come alive in our minds, create the right impressions, right imaginations in us, O Lord, that will cause us to give ourselves 100% to you. Pray, Father, that you would help us, that when times come for us to make, to develop character, patience, to keep your commandments, that we will not shrink from the self-denial that is required. That we will not even talk about sacrifice, but we will do it joyfully. We pray, Father, that whenever we pass through temptations and tribulations, you will give us that understanding that it is the patience of the saints that is being developed in us. Help us to believe your word even more that we may have faith in the promises that you've given to us, faith in the promise of eternal life, faith in the promise of having the new heavens and the new earth given to us. I pray, Father, that having this faith, we make decisions now to prepare for it. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name I pray.